0: Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, I'm joined by Corianne Molle to discuss a mystery centred around a small village in the mountains of southern France called Rennes-le-Chateau. In the late 1800s, there was a notable change in the financial situation of the local priest, who went from a state of abject poverty to one where he was able to spend considerable amounts of money on various building projects around Wren. Rumours soon spread that he had found a fantastic treasure somewhere in or near the church, but the location and exact nature of the find has never been confirmed. Many people have researched and investigated the activities of the enigmatic priest since, however, with numerous compelling theories on the source of his wealth proposed, and many books being written on the subject. The most famous, perhaps, being Holy Blood, Holy Grail, by Henry Lincoln, Michael Bajan, and Richard Lee, which really helped to popularise the mystery. Corian has been investigating for over 25 years, and has put together a comprehensive repository of information on his website about Wren, including a podcast series featuring interviews with some of the best-known researchers of the mystery. He has also participated in a number of documentary series like Forbidden History and recently appeared in the current season of The Curse of Oak Island. The Rennes-le-Chateau mystery is something that has interested me for a long time, and it was fantastic to be able to talk with someone as knowledgeable on the subject as Corian. Without any further ado, here is the episode. Enjoy! Corian, welcome to the podcast.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, not at all. I've been interested in in this mystery for a long time. So it's great to have someone on to talk about it. To start off with, just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this mystery.
1: Um, Wow, that's all a long time ago. Uh, My name is Corianne Moll, Corianne like in coriander. Um, People in uh, English-speaking countries used to call me CJ, but then uh, Baywatch uh, got on television and ruined it all. (laughs) Um, because there was a better looking CJ in there Um, I live in the Netherlands uh, and uh, became interested in the mystery of Renly Chateau uh, more than 25 years ago uh, when I had to wait for a flight on the island of Malta where I was on uh, a holiday with my wife Um, so I ran into a bookstore um, and um, uh, bought a copy of Holy Blood, Holy Grail um, to kill the time Uh, which is basically um, the story behind Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, uh, way before the Da Vinci Code was ever published. Um, And what this book does um, in a nutshell is relate the story uh, of Jesus and Mary Magdalene who were actually married, got children, uh, who bloodlined into the Merovingian uh, dynasty in the Royal House of France. Um, And then, you know, Allegedly, a poor parish priest in the south of France had discovered documents about this, and then uh, uh, the church, whoever, uh, were paying him loads of money to get or keep that secret. is not completely clear, um, but you know the uh, the spirit of that um, uh, caught me immediately. You know, I was I was actually uh, a little altar boy when I when I when I was young. Uh, my parents uh, took me to church um and um uh, you know i i knew uh, all the stories from the bible and and reading this uh, to me believe it or not was quite uh, quite an insight and quite quite a shock so it, it had an impact on me and uh you know i wanted to see these locations uh, for myself and you know from the first time i set foot in reno chateau um i i got hooked you know by the beauty the atmosphere it, it is an amazing place you know even without this mystery it's a it's a beautiful spot to be in um, and since then I guess you know i've I've read everything there is to read about it bought all the books and uh, magazines everything i I could get my hands on and started compiling everything into a website because I thought you know there wasn't one single source of well truth is a is a difficult word in this mystery but I wanted to to have a, a single source of documentation where you sort of you know, objectively have everything that's out there uh, a little bit categorized uh, uh, for people to be able to see the woods, you know, uh, for the trees. Um, So that website is still there. Um, And then, you know, I took another step uh, and and did the same as you do. started a podcast uh, with two friends, Andrew Goff and the late Philip Coppens. We called it Renaissance, you know, telling people the essence about the Renly Chateau uh, mystery and it got quite big uh, we interviewed all the original researchers so one of the writers of Holy Blood, Holy Grail Henry Lincoln uh, but also local uh, legends like Jean-Luc Robin um, but also you know international best-selling authors on the subject like uh, you know over the over the years we interviewed Steve Berry Kate Boss, Kathy McGowan uh, and it, it, was, it was really quite amazing um, so not only uh, you know did we learn a lot about it, the whole thing but we met some amazing people and uh and had a lot of fun together uh, at the same time you know i've been trying to uh, to form my own opinion which i guess uh still varies by the day because there's so much going on and and so many angles so many angles and and so many rabbit holes uh, you can get lost in uh but uh what can i say it's been very entertaining uh and that,
0: that's how it all came about, I guess. Cool. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. When I was trying to plan how I would structure this episode, the mystery itself is so broad and, and encompasses so many different areas. I was, I was wondering where to start. But I think the best place is with Berenja Sonia, the priest. If you're someone that isn't fully aware of what this mystery is, do you think that's the best jumping off point? For someone that wants to understand this mystery and investigate themselves,
1: I yeah I guess so. I think that's uh, that that's a great place because you know the 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 core of uh, between brackets uh, uh, the mystery is 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 actually very simple. Mm. Uh, there was a uh, uh, a poor parish priest, uh, you know, on a hill in the south of France, who uh, all of a sudden became very rich and nobody knew where the money came from. You know, that's that's basically still the mystery. Um, so at the end of the 19th century, uh, we have this, uh, local guy, beranger Sonier is his name. Uh, he's a kid from the region. He was actually born, uh, you know, two hills, uh, further down the road. Um, and at some stage, you know, he, he becomes the priest of this place, Renly Chateau, which at the time, and now we're talking, uh, the 1880s, 1885, um, the village is, uh, is very poor, uh, The village church is in ruins, uh, and he's just put there, uh, you know, without any money and without any resources, and uh, uh, he's supposed, uh, you know, to to bring uh, uh, the gospel uh, uh, to the people there and uh, make sure there's a a church service uh, every week, so not a very easy, uh, outgoing uh, position. Um, He kept uh, quite meticulous uh, accounting books, so we know that uh, in 1892 uh, he had a debt of 105 francs, uh, uh, something like 80 francs in his uh, in his savings, and that was it. And then from the 1890s forward, that all starts to change, uh, and the sums get bigger and bigger. And at the end of his life, he owns all of the hill. He's built a road, a uh, uh, you know a watering system, um, and he, he's built some some sort of a uh, a, a gaudy style uh, estate on top of this hill, um, you know, that is still there uh, today, and it really makes you wonder. You know, how did he, how did he fund all that?
0: Mm. As I understand it, there were some renovations done on the church. He got a little bit of money to fix up the church so that I suppose services could be held there again. And in the process of that, it's reported that he found some documents in an altar.
1: Yes. Yeah so that that is really that is really the story so um he started renovating his church and then you know at some stage uh he finds he opens a tomb and and there's various stories uh about uh what he found you know and how he uh, and how he found it there there's numerous theories and ideas um but um and, and we know, uh, if, if you look later in his life, when he talks about his own life, for example, to his friend, uh, uh, Antoine Beau, who was the, uh, uh, the priest of Campagne-sur-Ode, uh, which is a, a village uh, close by, during a, a dinner party, he says, um, um, they gave it to me, I took it, I made it work, and I will hold on to it. Um, and, and also, you know, um, statements like that have really added to the mystery. Now, if you look at the facts, and if you, if you, or the facts huh, for as far as they are available, if you um, look at, for example, interviews that uh, uh, have been done with people that were there at the time, or at least you know were family of people that were there at the time, um, you know there, there's there's one one story that is perhaps sort of reliable, um, and this is uh, a story related by Antoine Capche, and he's the grandson of Sonier's bell ringer um and he says that uh, at some stage um uh, not sonnier but his grandfather uh, so uh, uh, the other Antoine Capier his grandfather found a glass file so you know a, a small glass tube inside a wooden baluster that was there to support the pulpit in the 1880s um, so this wooden support pillar that carried the old pulpit had been taken down during the work to restore the church um and when Capche in the evening did his round through the church in renovation, he noticed that part of this baluster had come loose, revealing a small hidden compartment. And now inside, allegedly, he found a small glass tube, you know, with a document inside that he gave uh, to Sonnier, who very soon after started digging up not only the church but the graveyard. Um, and and there, there are several local sources that uh, that confirm this, uh, because you know the people in the village didn't really like him, uh, you know, overturning the graveyard uh, at night at night because they had uh, relatives uh, uh, lying there, of course. Um, so that is one story. There's also a story that Sornier found a pot filled with golden coins or golden golden medals, uh, a golden chalice. Uh, the stories he uh, he found a tomb um, you know the, the, uh, uh, there's many uh, many stories uh, uh, going about but what appears to be the case is that he he did find some documents that these documents did point him to a location either in or just outside the church um, and that gave him access either through the church or through uh, a dummy grave in the cemetery to the underground crypt under the church. Um, what he found in there is, uh you know, is the, the stuff of uh, a lot of speculation. Um, what is certain is that there were um, at least, uh, uh, or there was at least one, uh, possibly two crypts uh, under the church. And what is also certain is that uh, Sonia uh, blocked uh, the access as soon as he was done there, and until today, you know, no one's uh, had no one's had the possibility to had a look in there. Uh, even though uh, some people have tried very hard, I think only last year they caught someone uh, who was digging a, a tunnel from his house, uh, and he was already uh, you know halfway uh, when they caught him. Uh, but no one, uh, 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 as far as I know, has been able to set foot in that crypt or you know see what's inside that crypt uh, since he sealed it off. Uh, Um, at the end of the 19th century.
0: Right, because I know that after he found those manuscripts that purportedly came from inside the altar pillar, he goes to see the local bishop in Carcassonne, and then a bit later on he goes to Paris.
1: That's, well...
0: (laughs) Is that still accurate? It seems like there's a point where he goes to Paris, has a bit of a break while these documents are getting checked, goes to the Louvre and gets a picture and then comes back and then the increase in spending starts?
1: Well, I guess the question there is, was that ever true? Um, right, okay. I think these these stories uh, come from the book uh, uh, The Accursed Treasure of Brandy Chateau by Girard de was a French journalist who sort of uh, made this thing world famous and on his part triggered uh, the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grill to write their book. Hmm. Um, there's no to cut it short. There's no evidence that he was ever in Paris. Right. Um, there was at one stage, you know, a little uh, a little Eiffel Tower uh, somewhere in uh, in his Villa Britannia in his in his house. Or well, he never even lived there, but uh, that's one of the uh, um, buildings that he uh, that he built on his estate. Um, but you know, one of the stories is uh, stories is that he bought a reproduction of Nicolas Poussin's most famous work, The Shepherds of Arcadia, um, of which we now know that, you know, the Louvre didn't sell any reproductions uh, of that at all at the time. Um, So there's a lot of problems uh, uh, with that story. Um, So so what he has found, I mean, there's various stories. They say he found a parchment uh, containing the genealogy of, of King Dagobert II, um, with missing pieces uh, because um, uh, the bloodline of uh, the Merovingians uh, 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 was broken. There were people missing, and this would fill it in. It said he found a testament um, of one of the lords of Rennes, who links rennes chateau to uh, um, the Dagobert uh, family. Um, maybe a testament uh, of Henri dhaute another lord. Um, maybe he found two parchments uh, that contain clues. Um, um, maybe he found uh, other stuff. You know, um, Theories range from uh, a crypt uh, to the body of Jesus, the treasure of the Templars, the treasure of Blanche of Castile, evidence of the Merovingian bloodline, evidence uh, Jesus didn't die on the cross, the, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the tomb of Mary Magdalene, the Ark of the Covenant, the menorah, um, genealogies, money, valuables, uh, the mummified body of Christ, the arma Christi, so you know the hammer that uh, nailed the nails into the cross. You know the list is endless. Um, I think you know the most likely story. If you so, so what I've tried to do over the years is 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 look at this from you know what what makes sense, what would be the motive, and 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 what what is real about this, and what what moved, would make sense in its historical context? Uh, because I'm I'm convinced, you know, the key to this whole mystery is there. And then I guess the area you need to look at um, is 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 a hundred years before. Uh, so th- that's the time um, around the French Revolution. Now. In August 1792, as a result of the French Revolution, a law was passed dictating that the clergy were to be made employees of the state, um, elected by their parish or by their bishopric, and the number of bishoprics was to be reduced. And all priests and bishops were to swear an oath of fidelity to the new order or face dismissal, deportation or death. Um, Now, at the time, there was a group of some 20 priests from the region that fled the area uh, into northern Spain. Uh, but, you know, around the revolution, not only the clergy had to flee, of course, also the nobility had to flee. Uh, this was the revolt of the people, power to the people. Um, Louis the XVI uh, was decapitated. And uh, if you were a noble, if you had, you know, grand possessions, uh, you weren't uh, uh, certain of your life. Um, people would come, uh, you know, ruin your chateau, uh, get your furniture, get your valuables, steal everything. Uh, you know, on the, on the, under the flag of the revolution. So around the 1790s, uh, groups of priests uh, together with, uh, you know, groups from the nobility fled the country, not only in, uh, you know, around Rennes-le-Chateau, but uh, everywhere in France. Uh, now, what what could be a scenario here that, that, from my perspective, you know, would be more or less likely is that um, valuables either you know, ecclesiastical, um, what's the word? Uh, church valuables uh, were stashed in the crypt, or maybe uh, possessions uh, of the nobility. There's a story that uh, there was a large group of uh, Franciscans in the area who had holy relics, uh, who had very valuable uh, uh, artifacts, church artifacts, that they hid those on this hilltop under this ruined church there. They locked it up. And they left the clues in a little glass tube to be found by the next priest uh, who would uh, start to renovate uh, the church uh, uh, before saying mass at whatever time later. Or perhaps, you know, they thought they would come back at some stage uh, and, uh, you know, they would be able to retrieve whatever was under that church. Uh, In actual fact, you know, uh, very few did. Uh, Most of them uh, died in exile. Uh, and uh, and I think they, they took this secret uh, into their graves until, you know, this this guy of the region comes in, starts digging in the church, uh, finds um, where the access is uh, to this crypt, opens it up and starts selling what he finds.
0: Right. So when you were doing your own investigations, where did you start with that line of thinking? What, what resources were available to you?
1: Um, very little um, right. well I mean th- right. th- this is this is one of these these uh, stories or, or mysteries where there's there's an abundance of information um, and uh, you know y- you can uh, find books about uh, involvement of the Hab- Habsburgs or uh, the Vatican, but very few concentrate on what, what actually happened there in that region um so you know um with the help uh, of some uh, fellow researchers um we tried to uh, to put basically to put the timeline together so what happened when who was involved who had relations with whom where did they study did they know each other um and what could have happened um you know and and then one of the things i try to focus on is um there's a where, where uh, sonier um, was guilty of simony. Now simony um, is the practice of of selling masses, mass trafficking, which is basically requesting money for masses that he never that he never said. Um, uh, to be very clear, this guy was a crook. Um, uh, he was he was adored by the people in the village because you know he gave them uh, money, he gave them facilities. He was very good to the people in the village, but he was also you know, a little bit of a, uh, uh, a little bit of a crook. There's clear evidence that he was guilty of the practice of simony, as were many of his colleagues at the time. Um, still, you know, the amount of money that he spent on his domain, um, um, uh, you know, isn't or is much more than what he could have um, uh, had as income f- from his simony. Uh, so, detailed analysis of his records uh, has uh, uh, tells you that he received um something like 110,000 requests to say mass 110,000 so what he would do he would put adverts in in local uh uh uh, uh newspapers and local uh, there was all sorts of uh, uh um uh, magazines uh, uh going around that people could have a subscription to uh and he put little ads in there um it's safe to say the 110,000 masses he could never ever have said those. You know, a priest could say three masses in one day, and they didn't even hold sermons every day. Um, now, if you then look at you know how, what sort of money could he have made from that? The going rate for a mass at the time, let, let's say 1880, was one one franc, increasing up to you know one and a half francs at the time of his death, uh, which means that the total amount he could have earned. Uh, you know, would have totaled up to 150,000 francs. That only accounts for, I think, you know, less than 20% of his recorded expenditure. Um, so, you know, that can't really have been um, the source of all his income. So he committed simony, but that wasn't his primary source of income. Um, another thing that is uh, known about him is that he was away from his domain um, for for large bits or for, for for periods at the time. I think I have an overview on my website somewhere. Or I, have seen it, or I have it in a book somewhere uh, where people have you know some people are really obsessed by this mystery. You know, there, there's people around that have been going through his notebooks and his account books and they've recorded you know every day that he wasn't um, in Le Chateau. Um, so we can see the gaps in his diary there. Um, and then what, what what he did was very clever. He had a number of, uh, let's call them out-of-office replies. He had standard letters um, that he would have his uh, servant send back to people who send him a letter, uh, uh, you know, to the tone of, I'm sorry I can't answer your question uh, at the moment. I'm uh, really busy, but I'll, uh, I've will i received your letter and I will we'll respond in a couple of days, something like that. Um, um, and, you know, it, it, one of the, the, the options or one of the possibilities is that uh, what he actually did is, is, uh, is go out and, uh, and sell some of his stuff, um, some of the stuff that he found beneath the church. Um, and a, a circumstantial bit of evidence for that is that, uh, for example, uh, when the First World War starts, uh, his movement is restricted a little bit. He can't, you know, uh, and he gets older. He doesn't walk as easily anymore. He uh, doesn't walk as good anymore. Uh, and on those moments when it's more difficult for him to leave his estate, his money dries up. So for me, you know, all that together is a, um, a sign that he got his money. He, he went to get money. And going to get uh, money somewhere um, to uh, as the result of a sale of something.
0: Right. Okay.
1: To me, that would make more sense, and it's you know this is as as logical uh, as it gets. You find something, you sell it, you get money, you build a house.
0: Mm-hmm. There is one thing: when he gets their money, he does renovate the church. Further, and he puts in some unusual features. So, uh, a statue of Asmodeus and a stone over the door saying, This place is terrible in French. Why do you think he was doing those things? Because I know that from watching Henry Lincoln's earlier documentaries, this seemed to be key to the mystery and, and the theories that go more towards things like the Priory of Sion, which, as we've just been discussing, a lot of it comes from that book by said. So, why do you think Berenge was doing those things?
1: There's a couple of, of possible explanations. Uh, one is uh, bad taste. Um, <laughs> another one is um, maybe he had something to hide. And maybe he did find, maybe he also had something in his, um, uh, in his script. Maybe he also found something in his script there was more than just something he could sell um and and you can't you can't rule it out if you look at this church you know the uh, this place is terrible um is is part of a a bible verse uh, can also be interpreted as you know this place is awesome um hmm. inspiring um asmodeus very good idea or or very uh, uh, not really an idea at the same time if you look at the statue it's not only a devil it's a devil uh um, who is crushed by a group of angels uh that say you know uh in hoc uh, etc you know by this sign we will conquer holding a cross which corresponds with one of his early sermons uh, that he did because what is sure is that sonia was a a devout catholic um still there is a number of really really peculiar things uh about this church. You know, one example that I always found telling was that uh, if you look at the stations of the cross, so uh, the, the the 14 tableaus, the, the, the 14 sculpture works that depict um, um, the, uh, uh, the the way of Jesus uh, uh, to the cross and then uh, to his tomb, um, they hang inverted in rennes chateau Opposed to almost every other church in France, except for uh, Perpignan's sense Saint peace in Paris. Um, all the stations look to have, you know, some sort of Masonic cross on them. Uh, station one is a golden griffon. Um, um, there's an arc in the sky on station three, uh, perhaps uh, a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. Um, On one station, I think Station 8, there's a little boy who wears a tartan cloth, um, a tartan uh, as worn by people in Scotland. Now, the colors on this cloth cloth are the colors of the the Gunn family. Sir James Gunn allegedly sailed to Nova Scotia in 1397 with the St. Clair family. Um, So this is where all of a sudden we're on Oak Island um Mm. there's all sorts of things uh uh uh, going on um there's a lot there's a a statue uh, of saint anthony who's the patron saint of everything gone missing there's a number of saints who spell the word graal in an m Um, there's a lot of inversions on the domain the number 17 and 22 is paramount on the domain. And, and there's some really weird things going on. So at the corner of his domain, Sornier built a tower, the Tour Magdala. Now Magdala is a Hebrew word; it means tower. But Magdala is, all, is also uh, the name for Mary Magdalene. Now, at the corner of this tower is a round, round little turret. Um, the stairs through this little turret to the, um, uh, to the top of this tower, has 22 steps, 22nd of July, being the feast day of Mary Magdalene. Exactly in the middle, there's a little window. Uh, if you look out that window at an angle of 22 degrees, you look into what is locally known as the Cave of Mary Magdalene. Um, so you have this tour Magdala, 22 steps, uh, halfway, twenty-two degrees to the uh, the grotto of Mary Magdalene, um, and this I could go on forever. Uh, this whole domain is uh, is full of uh, of these things. Um, uh, by the way, uh, the village church was always uh, was also dedicated to uh, to Mary Magdalene, uh, as are many other churches uh, in the region. Um, it all adds to the to the flavor. It adds it adds to uh, to the mystery, it adds to the to the speculation, um, and yeah, who who, know, who knows uh, uh, who's right, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What can I say? Exactly.
0: One thing I was going to ask is: there any indication of who Berenice Sonia might have been getting his money from, and who he might have been selling to, if it was something tangible?
1: Uh, the short answer is no. Um, there's people who say it's uh, people in higher places. Uh, a French minister, Dujardin Beaumetz, uh, was once uh, at his domain. Allegedly, uh, Johan Ort, uh, one of the Habsburgs, uh, was there perhaps to buy something. Um, other people say that he just left his uh, domain to say masses for the death. And he was sort of a specialist that used relics from his crypt. Uh, to bring people to the next life, <clears throat> who knows um, the masses, so the simony part that money came from normal people from convents uh, from other priests who didn't have time to say these masses and thought he would do it uh, for money, etc et etc cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's no i've I've not been able to distinguish a pattern there
0: right alongside the theory that you were just talking about with the wealth that was secreted away during the French Revolution. I know that there are other theories as to what the treasure was that involve, like you were saying, the Merovingians and perhaps something to do with the Knights Templar or the the Cathars. With those theories, what sort of evidence is there that that indicates that that might be at least part of the mystery? Because I know that that area... Has a long history, and it, it must be almost impossible for there not to be something Merovingian in Rennes Chateau because it used to be part of a Merovingian city, I believe. So, in terms of when you're doing your own research, what is it about these theories that perhaps has the most weight?
1: Okay, that, that's a great question. Um, at some stage, uh, Rayday, uh, which is the uh, the forerunner of current Rennes Chateau, um, was the capital of the Visigoth Empire or the Visigoth Kingdom? So there is a chance that after the Visigoths uh, sacked Rome in what is it, the year four something, uh, brought treasures from Rome to the region. It's 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 a, it's a possibility. Um, this whole area is is drenched in in blood and legends. Uh, there were Knights Templar in the area even though uh, it wasn't as much as some people think. Um, You had the Albigensian Crusade uh, in the area. You know, all all of that could have left uh, traces. The story that I think is most believable um, is the story of a a shepherd called Paris. And it's, I guess, most believable because it was published about in in the 1600s, in the 17th century. Um so the story is that in the spring of 1645 a shepherd called Ignatius Paris found golden coins on the lands of the local lord uh uh and and, and the lands included uh, uh um now um uh, what what followed was a fight between the local bishop uh, local bishop Nicholas and this local lord, whose name was Blaise d'Aupoul. Um, and also involved there were Nicolas and François Fouquet. Now, Nicolas Fouquet has become famous by being uh, uh, Louis XIV's finance minister. Uh, this is the story uh, of, of him having built the castle of vaux le um, uh, making a party there which was grander than any king could give. So, Louis XIV got really jealous. Uh, he threw uh, um, uh, 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 Nicolas Fouquet uh, into prison, confiscated all his stuff and put the money in, uh, in Versailles. Um, th- th- there, might be a, there might be a link there. What is fact is that in, I think it was in 1661, there was a local, or local, there was a, a magazine called uh, Muse Historique, uh, which talks about a treasure being found in the region. Um, so there is a certain uh, validity to that. And then, if you if you look at what what happens historically, um, a couple of years after this has all gone down, so this uh, this shepherd has fo- found gold coins, he brings uh, the messages to his local lord, he talks to the business, and they start sort of fighting over the area. And then, in 1666, uh, Jean-Baptiste Colbert. Um, who's the uh, the prime minister for Louis XIV um, uh, erects the uh, uh, the Royal Company of Mines and Forgeries in uh, in the Languedoc um, with the intent to start mining uh, on this land, uh, this very land, the the same land where allegedly the Knights Templar had their castle of Blanchefort um, and uh, um, the same land where I think even today we can see old Roman uh, uh, gold and silver mines. Um, So I guess historically, that is uh, the most tangible treasure, you know, treasure finding story that that I've been able to trace. Right. Yeah. I
0: mean, that sounds like it has elements in it that you said the book that he created, it sounds like perhaps he, he had some of that information because I know Poussin was involved in that, wasn't he? Someone wrote to Poussin about that situation, I think. It was someone who was a brother to the bishop, wasn't he, I think? And he wrote to Poussin. This was um,
1: 1656, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. And uh, the letter was written by Louis Fouquet, who was the brother of this Nicolas Fouquet. Mm. Uh, Poussin at the time lived in Rome and uh, Louis Fouquet wrote a letter to his brother Nicolas in which he said uh, Monsieur Poussin uh, has um, uh, discussed certain things with me I think the text is uh, which I shall with ease be able to explain to you in detail things that will give you advantages you know, which even kings would have great pains to draw for him uh, which, according to him, is it's possible that nobody else will ever be able to rediscover in the centuries to come. These are things so difficult to discover that nothing on this earth can prove or better fortune uh, nor be their equal. Um, something like that, uh, which has been you know the kickstart of a lot of uh, uh, mystery theories and uh, which puts uh, Poussin in the dead center uh, of a number of um, um, uh, uh, mysteries uh, uh, I guess. Um, Girard said, uh, and also Henry Lincoln uh, made a big thing about the Poussin tomb being close to Renly Chateau. Now, if you take Nicolas Poussin's most famous work of art, The Shepherds of Arcadia, you see a big stone tomb and around it are a number of, sh- a number of shepherds. And they are pointing at this tomb. On this tomb, there's a an inscription that says, at in Arcadia Ego. Um, at the time that the said wrote his book, there was a tomb outside Renle Chateau uh, that is the absolute spitting image of the tomb on Nicolas Poussin's painting. Um, and if you would take a photo, you know, um, in a, from a certain position, you could almost recreate. The landscape on Nicolas Poussin's painting. So you would see the tomb. Uh, you could imagine the shepherds kneeling in front of it, and then behind it, you would see three peaks. One of them, Cardu. One of them, the Templar Castle of uh, Blanchefort, and one of them, Le Chateau. And according to the said and Henry Lincoln, this was one of the uh, the clues that something was going on here because Nicolas Poussin. Et in Arcadia Ego, that was an anagram. Et in Arcadia Ego was actually supposed to be uh, Itego Arcana Dei, be gone. I conceal the secrets of God. Um, And by putting Ren Le Chateau in the background on his painting, that would be a clue. Now, if you you start looking at this from a historical perspective, you can see that uh, that tomb wasn't built until the 1930s, uh, where Nicolas Poussin created this uh, uh, painting in the 16 in the 1630s, I think 1638, something like that. Um, so it's impossible um, that the two are related in that way. Moreover, um, it's unlikely that Poussin was ever in the area uh, to paint it. Um, but it 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 definitely uh, that's to the mystery. And you have to admit, if you look at old photos where the tomb's still there, I mean, the uh, the, the resemblance is, is striking.
0: Yeah, it's a remarkable coincidence. In preparation for this interview, I, I watched Henry Lincoln's old BBC documentary. He did three films for him in the seventies, and yes. it is, yeah, it's it's a remarkable similarity. That in itself, how that came to be there, that tomb in that exact spot. It is fascinating. Is, do we know much about that tomb itself? Is it was it just a a, a regular tomb? Does it have any connection to rennes le Chateau other than its that similarity?
1: It's a it's a mystery. Um, the The tomb was erected by the Lawrence family, um, and uh, uh, Mister Lawrence actually uh, buried his grandmother in it. Uh, he had her embalmed and then uh, put her in there. Um, reason uh reason unknown uh, uh presumably because he wanted to give her a nice place uh, to rest uh later she's been uh removed and brought to a cemetery nearby and then i think uh, the guy who bought uh, uh, the domain of the lawrences uh, 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 put his cats uh, uh, in there and then in the end i think in the 1980s uh, the whole thing was dynamited because people kept uh, uh, trespassing, uh, you know, on this gentleman's property, and uh, and try to uh, to excavate uh, whatever was around or uh, uh, in or under this uh, this piece of uh, piece of stone. Um, what is <laughs> just gonna add a little little intrigue here? Um, the Lawrence family came from North America. Um, Louis Lawrence came to the area specifically to look for gold and silver. So if you look at this, uh, you know, if you look this up, you can uh, still find his uh, migration documents so you can see his passport uh, 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 online on sites like uh, ancestry.com. I'm sure many people uh, use that. Um, you can see that he, he was an engineer. He came to the south of France to find gold and silver, which is remarkable because by the time he arrived, it was very well known that all these mines in the area had long been exhausted. Um, and then, if you look at his name, Lawrence, and you look at his, his family, then there is a distinct possibility uh, that he was related to the family of, of Charles Lawrence, uh, the governor of Nova Scotia, uh, right. who had something to do, uh, again, with uh, an island in the North Atlantic. Uh, called Oak Island. Um, so there might be more to this than we know. but fact is someone of that lineage moves to Europe, builds a tomb that's a spitting image of Poussin's tomb in a location that's a spitting image of uh, Poussin's tomb, even though historically there really can't be any connection. and you know this is <laughs> one of the great things about this whole mystery it keeps you pondering and puzzling you know until forever um and there, there's a rabbit hole around every corner uh, but uh you yeah, on a rainy sunday this can be uh, immensely gratifying
0: mm, i can imagine it seems to be the the gift that keeps on giving
1: <laughs> yeah it is it is it really is i mean there's always a link there's always a link you didn't see before
0: mm. i mean i know that um I watched a, a documentary with Henry Lincoln, and I, th- I think at that point he'd, he'd come to realise that some of the information that he'd been using in his investigations might not be accurate. And he was investigating more the alignment of certain places in the landscape, so Rennes-la-Chateau and the castles that you mentioned, the Templar Prefectory and a site on Bezu, and you could find, you could see shapes in the landscape like a pentagram for example and there seemed to be a connection with the templars there that perhaps they'd found something when they were in jerusalem and and were applying that knowledge in the landscape i mean in your research do you and talking to henry lincoln as well of course what do you think of that element to the legend of Le chateau um you
1: know henry had a lot of information, and he saw, you know, many of his clues vaporize in front of his eyes. You know, when time progressed, and, and the state of research, uh, you know, got better and better, and people started sharing more information. Uh, so I think he was really hurt by this whole disinformation uh, campaign that uh, Pierre Plantard and uh, Philippe de say uh, had built up around Ranley Chateau, uh, which is a real shame. Um, so what he did, you know, it. I guess, you know, he, he was frustrated by the fact that there were so little tangible, hard facts. Um, so he, he started turning to, to what everybody could see. And, that, and, and what he came up with is this, uh, this huge pentagram in the landscape. So if you look at the map of the area, and you can take any map, you can go to Google Earth now and check it for yourself. If you connect the Church of St. Mary Magdalene around the Chateau, to the Templar Chateau of Blanche for, uh, to the hilltops, hilltops of uh, La Soulane and Lausette, and the Castle of Bezou, which is another Templar castle, you get a perfect pentagram, a perfect five-pointed star. And to make it even better, at the heart of this star lies an area which is called La Lavalieu, the Valley of God. And at the heart, there's this big, there's a huge, huge. I'm assuming it's an oak. I've never checked, but this huge tree, uh, which 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 makes it <laughs> look larger than life, and 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 fantastic. Uh, this alignment is uh, is fact. You know, this is something uh, you can uh, go check for yourself. You can see it. You can measure it. And uh, you know, there's a very good chance that uh, that pe- that people knew this. Um, you know, a pentagram. I guess, um, in the 11th, 12th century would have been a good shape to hide something in because it would have some sort of a natural protection. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's imaginable that, uh, the Templars, um, you know, did something in a place that would have sacred significance for them, you know? because of the layout of the land, which happened to be a uh, a pentagram. And they emphasized that by putting two castles uh, and a little village church uh, uh, on three of the corners. Um, And the the pentagram is a a thing there. There's a a little church in Salsa not too far far from uh, rennes chateau that has an inverted pentagram on its front porch. Uh, it looks if you if you ever go there, it looks incredibly spooky, especially you know, on a on a on, on an early morning when there's all fog and stuff. It looks uh, you know, almost uh, satanical. Um, it's a uh, yeah, pentagrams is is a theme in the area for sure.
0: Mm. I mean, it was fa- fascinating because I, I know in the in a third of his films that he did in the seventies, Henry Lincoln, he talks about this this element to the legend and and how there's a correspondence with the alignment of Venus, the Sun, and the Earth. If yeah. you yeah. go back and have the Earth as the center of the solar system, basically, there are, there are five points at which all three line up, and you can create the same pentagram. And I think Venus is associated with Mary Magdalene as well. And, and, and this whole area where the pentagram is, there's a deep association with Mary Magdalene too. So it just seems like there's so much going on. There doesn't seem to be one sort of focal point when you come to investigating what's going on here. There seems to be lots of different stories there, and they're all sort of interconnected.
1: The f- the funny thing is that um, when Henry um, tried to well, almost distance himself, you know, from the from Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and the follow ups that had been written by uh, uh, by his co authors like uh, Michael Bajant and Richard Lee, um, he discovered this giant pentagram and then started to realize how much that is associated with Mary Magdalene, you know, as above, as below. Um, You know, each planet moves in a pattern around the sun. You know, all are irregular with the exception of Venus. You know, she's regular like clockwork, drawing a pinnacle every eight years. Um, uh, uh, So um, yeah, that's, that that's a, a very peculiar thing about this. All the, the other thing uh, uh, that's always nagging in the back of my mind is that Venus uh, is one of the only planets that travels from east to west and not from west to east, where in the west you have America.
0: Right. Mm, I hadn't thought about that. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think so too.
0: Mm. So with your own research, what are you currently working on at the moment? Are you, are you still... Researching Ren La Chateau, or are you have you got other projects ongoing?
1: Um, I have other projects uh, ongoing, but I'm uh, tapping into my uh, Ren le Chateau research too. Um, I was approached uh, last summer by uh, uh, the Oak Island team um, because they had some questions about uh, Poussin, who kept uh, popping up, uh, you know, in uh, in their research. So I've been on the show. Uh, a couple of times now um, uh, discussing Pusan and what this uh, relation could be uh, to the island um, and I'm uh, still looking into that and the rest I can't say. I'm uh, I'm on the non-disclosure so I can't tell you.
0: Oh understood <laughs> brilliant well Koya, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. If people want to know more about yourself and your work investigating the Ren le chateau mystery, how best do they do that?
1: Um, that's very easy. Um, my website is renleschateau.nl. Um, that's uh, Ren, rennes unl nl. Um, there you'll find uh, at least all my old research uh, and, you know, a wealth of links. Uh, there's... Uh, The original uh, um, BBC documentaries are there that you referenced, uh, made by Henry Lincoln. Um, The uh, podcast interviews uh, that we did with all the authors and researchers uh, are there, so uh, you can entertain yourself there uh, for at least uh, four weeks uh, during uh, quarantine. (laughs) Um, And you can see me uh, on season seven uh, of The Curse of Oak Island uh, in the war room uh, presenting uh, my theories uh, on Nicolas Poussin, and uh, the season isn't over yet, so uh, you might see me uh, uh, more there.
0: Ah, oh, brilliant. Well, I think your rennes La chateau website is fantastic. I'll make sure to put that information in the show notes.
1: Okay, thanks, man.
0: Uh, you're very welcome.
1: Okay, thanks, Rick. Take
0: care. I hope you enjoyed that interview. This episode came in at a little under an hour so I'm wondering if I should have asked Corian a couple more questions. However, I think we covered all the important stuff, and if this episode has intrigued you, then his website about Ren Le Chateau is a fantastic resource to find out more about the mystery. I also strongly recommend you watch Henry Lincoln's three-part documentary series about Ren. He lays out the bones of the mystery, pun intended, in a very engaging manner. These films were made at a time when the important sites in the area were much more accessible and he makes you wish that this was still the case. They also feature a fantastically atmospheric soundtrack. Sadly, as Corian mentioned, the questionable veracity of some of the information available at the time meant that he was led on a bit of a wild goose chase regarding certain theories during his investigations, but there is still plenty of worth in those films. It's ironic that the disinformation seems to have taken at least some inspiration from other genuine mysteries concerned with the site, which researchers like Corian are now focusing on. Well, it's time to say goodbye. As ever, if you'd like to get in touch with me at Sphere HQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find someothersphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well known podcast platforms, where you can follow or subscribe. Ratings and reviews are also very much appreciated. Until next time, stay safe and thank you very much for listening.